Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for October 24th, 2019, the Cooper Taylor Skipper Spy Edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C. Joining me from New Haven, Connecticut, from the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School, it is Emily Bazelon. Hello, Emily. Hi, you sound like an announcer for the next Democratic debate. Are you practicing? Have they brought you in as a <laughs> moderator? Would, they have not asked me to moderate. Maybe they're That's asking shocking. John to moderate. <laughs> uh, and from CBS's 60 Minutes, where he has now been inaugurated, he has said, I'm John, and I'm John Dickerson. Uh, on 60 <laughs> Minutes, it is, in fact, John Dickerson. Hello, John Dickerson. Hello, David. Hello, Emily. Hello. We are very, very excited for your debut. Can I just say that? Yes, we are excited. We're, we're even going to hit it up, hit back to it in Slate Plus. Oh, yeah, that's right. Slate and Plus indeed, listeners. Very good. Yes, they we'll, keep the we'll, log rolling. We'll reference it. On today's GabFest, the most shocking impeachment testimony yet. Impeachment takes some dark, strange turns this week. Then, Facebook... Uh, is it evil or just terrible or merely wicked? We will discuss. Then should should Democrats, should progressives take to the streets to try to end the Trump presidency? What has happened to mass protest? Why is there not more mass protest during this presidency? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. So much impeachment action this week. There were a bunch of critical elements on Tuesday and Wednesday. On Thursday, as we tape, no doubt more things are happening. First, probably most importantly, Bill Taylor, ambassador to Ukraine, testified that there absolutely was a quid pro quo planned within the U.S. government, apparently President Trump's orders to withhold $391 million in military aid to the government of Ukraine until the Ukrainian president publicly announced a probe into the Bidens. Second, there was a scheme that was, again, uh, seems to have come out of Taylor's testimony in other places, which was delineated, which involved getting the Ukrainian prime minister to act out his announcement of a probe on CNN. They attempted to <laughs> sort of extort him to go on CNN and gave him a script of what he would need to say to announce his probe. Third, the Ukrainians did indeed know about this quid pro quo demand. One of the claims that the Trump administration has made is that they, how could it have been a quid pro quo? The Ukrainians didn't even weren't even aware of it false. They did know about it a month earlier than previously believed, contradicting the administration's claim. And and then finally, well, maybe not finally, a group of conservative legislators invaded the SCIF, the secure room where secret depositions uh, were taken. Actually, I guess they weren't taken in that room, but they invaded the secure room to protest the secrecy of the impeachment inquiry um, and delay the impeachment inquiry for five hours. I'm sure there are other crucial points that I have missed. <laughs> you uh, forgot that they ordered pizza and brought their cell phones into this. And they brought their cell phones into the space. skiff. Yes. I would like to talk less about the skiff because I feel that's Me a too. distraction. So, Emily, what was so important in what Bill Taylor, the ambassador to Ukraine, said? And why is he an important witness? I think until now, the clarity, there was clarity lacking in the accusation that President Trump withheld military aid to Ukraine, which Congress had approved, at, in exchange for the Ukrainians promising or at least beginning an investigation to dig up dirt on Joe Biden and his son and also into the origins of the 2016 election, kind of following along a conspiracy theory that Trump believes in that would discredit the Mueller investigation and the whole notion that the Russians helped uh, Trump win the 2016 election. So what we have now from Taylor is this explicit quid pro quo for something big, military aid, as opposed to something smaller, which was the withholding of a meeting between Ukrainian President Zelensky and Trump. So this is the quid pro quo Trump has denied that all his defenders in um, the Republican Party have relied on. And Taylor has a ton of credibility. He has 50 years in public service. He has served every presidential administration, Republican and Democratic, since 1985. And he he brought receipts. He had uh, this 15 pages of testimony based on notes that he had taken um, while all these events are unfolding. And he spoke so much in sorrow rather than anger, um, expressing deep dismay about the kind of ruining of America's strong support for Ukraine in the face of Russian aggression. 
And it seemed clear that he was motivated by this feeling that the government has taken a disastrously wrong turn and that is harming a country and a part of the world that he has poured himself into and cares a great deal about. So, I mean, it was a pretty blockbuster day, honestly. Well, I want to interrupt on one important point, which is that all of what you're saying may well be true. I'm sure it is true. But how do we know that? You are characterizing something that was done in secret and has been leaked out. So, Right. Well, we do have these 15 pages of testimony from Taylor. And I, you know, I think to me, I I find this whole um, notion that the Democrats are doing some dastardly deed by holding these closed door hearings. I don't buy that. You know, lots of preliminary aspects of congressional investigations take place behind closed doors. Um, See Benghazi run by the Republicans. Eventually, these folks are going to have to testify in public if we proceed to an impeachment trial in the Senate, or they'll testify in public in the House before then. This seems like a perfectly fine way to gather information. I kind of wonder if the Democrats are making a political error because these witnesses seem to be very strong. On the other hand, I am so glad we're not having to listen to these members of the House grandstand um, on television while they ask their questions. So whatever. I do, however, want to hear more backup testimony for Taylor's account because he talked about a number of other officials who were in the room or on um, important phone calls in what he was describing. And then there is a contradiction between key aspects of his testimony and things that Gordon Sondland, who's the kind of Trump guy in the middle of this, has told Congress and also Kurt Volker. They're the like Trump officials whose accounts now sound fishy. So, John, one of the few gaps in the Taylor testimony, at least as it's been reported out, is that he did not have any direct order from the president to quid pro quo something, that he he was hearing it secondhand, that people said, oh, the president has said this and directed Chief of Staff Mulvaney to do this and that. Does that matter? No. Um, I mean... a couple of things is uh, the president does not need to just in the same way in a in a crime somebody doesn't need to say exactly what they're doing when they're doing it, um, and also uh, this isn't a crime and the and the venue in which it's being adjudicated is not strictly uh, a legal one. It's kind of it's a quasi legal political and and legal. It gets to a legal stage when you get into the Senate and you and you do in fact have the Chief Justice presiding. So it's it's not totally completely political. But if you keep the eye on the ball, which is that the president is is accused of misusing his job and the powers of his job for his own political purposes, and then bending U.S. foreign policy for his own political purposes in a way that, you know, one of the things that, that Taylor also reportedly testified about based on the 15 pages of opening statement is that um, that the Ukrainians uh, uh were dying at the hands of the Russian-led forces as a result of the delay in American military aid. So the consequences here are real. They are directly real in, with respect to the delays um, that were for the purposes, as he, he apparently testified, for the purposes of, of getting promises about this investigation. And I should note quickly that it's the public promise of the investigation is politically powerful more than simply the private promise to investigate because, of course, as we know from other investigations, once you say an investigation is happening, it off you know it, it takes all these legs and it becomes and, – and as we saw from the coverage of the State Department investigation of Hillary Clinton's emails, the investigation itself gets a lot more coverage than the exoneration does. Um, anyway, so you have the president who is bending U.S. foreign policy for his own private political purposes, and so that's the big problem. Um, and there's, it's not just Taylor. What makes Taylor damaging is that Taylor has testified to something that now a whole host of other people um, – uh, from the uh, from Volcker to Sondland to Hill, all testified to parts of this. There is a co and and this was all uh, in furtherance of of ratifying what the original whistleblower said. And it's essentially what Mick Mulvaney said out loud from the White House podium, which he then had to had to backtrack. Or he had, and so the the story lines up. What Taylor says brings into sharper relief a story that was already um, coming together. And finally, I would just say, I I think you were being um, 
uh, you were having fun with that question and 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 um, the idea that this is all being happening in secret. Emily's answer is the right one, of course. This process will play out and it will not be secret and people will have to um, put the facts on the table. But one, one thing we do know is we have a pattern of behavior of uh, President Trump's. Um, much of that pattern is what got him elected. And the idea that he would not be involved and not interested in a possible political benefit to his campaign from looking at corruption in Ukraine and that this was solely about his dedication to the idea of corruption is in, inconsistent with the picture of Donald Trump that, that people have had a chance to publicly witness over the last three years. And and just to actually add pungent detail to that. So one of the claims, the, the specious claims that the administration seems to be making is, oh, this is simply the or primarily the president uh, being concerned with corruption in Ukraine. But if you look at the actual behavior of the administration, as was reported, I think, in the Times. The Washington Post, Post had an article the about the cutting of the funding. Yeah. Yes, that the, that the administration has consistently sought to pursue cuts to all the programs which root out corruption in Ukraine and other places. And the idea that this is actually a matter of concern, that corruption is actually a matter of concern of this administration, is clearly nonsense uh, based on the facts. Emily, so what John has just presented and what we've all seen this week is this this incredibly damning set of of supposed of alleged facts and reporting about the president's uh, withholding of congressionally appropriated military aid to our allies who were causing the probable deaths and weakness of an ally of ours for personal political gain and distorting of American foreign, foreign policy. Uh, possibly suborning <laughs> suborning the Ukrainian president to appear on media to lie about it, which actually may in fact be a crime, according to something I read. And yet, and yet, and yet, and yet, there is not a significant amount of outrage on the right about this. Any chance that that starts to change? If it happens, it's going to happen all at once because the only way to do it safely is to do it in a pack. And I think that Fox News would also have to basically simultaneously turn on Trump. I think it's possible but unlikely that we're going to see that switch because I think there is such fear of the Republican base in terms of its loyalty to President Trump personally, when you look at how polarized Congress is and then the changing way in which people consume news and how it's delivered from Watergate, I think you see just like a different set of conditions on the ground for the political um, assessment that you're talking about. John, what do you think? One thing that occurs to me, just that I want to finish off on my point about the publicly observable behavior of the president, what we have in this instant that's alleged and that, and that actually the president is, has said out loud is that he cared so much about corruption that he delayed furthering U.S. foreign policy, which was to help Ukraine to keep pressure against the Russians. So in this case, corruption was so important that U.S. foreign policy was in a secondary position. With respect to Turkey, Russia, Philippines, Saudi Arabia, and probably some countries I'm not remembering, the president, to the acclaim of many, has taken an extremely relaxed position towards corruption, murder, um, all kinds of um, uh, bad behavior, human rights abuses, in order to support countries that he argues are doing things in the favor of, of American foreign policy. So just in terms of, of taking the alleged acts and measuring them against what, a, what Donald Trump normally does, we have yet another instance in which this behavior is so completely out of character from a character we know one thing about who doesn't change the way he behaves. He may change his positions, but doesn't change this wildly. So this is this is why you don't necessarily need to have the transcript in front of you. The, the facts that are known um, suggest that the story you're getting is asks you to believe something that your your own experience wouldn't um, uh, wouldn't suggest is the case on politics. The most important thing I think that happened this week, and it may not have even it may have been a slip of the tongue, in which case I'm putting too much um, uh, weight on it. But Mitch McConnell was asked if he, as the president had claimed, told the president that his phone call with the president of Ukraine was perfect. McConnell said. He asked this in front of a group of reporters. McConnell said he never talked to the president about um, the phone call with the president of Ukraine. And then when Nancy Cordes of CBS, who asked the original question, said, well, then what is he lying? McConnell said, well, you'll have to ask him. 
Mitch McConnell, perhaps above all others, and I think he'd take this as a compliment, knows how not to answer a question. We all know and become uh, conditioned to what it sounds like when a politician gives a response and not an answer. When he was asked, did he have this conversation with the president? Did he say it was a perfect phone call? He could have said, given a principled answer. I never talk about what I talk about with the president. He could have restated the point, said that was a perfect phone call and not address the idea of whether they'd ever talked about it. He could have answered a totally different question. He could have blamed the Democrats. He could have talked about the, the devil in the deep blue sea. He didn't do any of that. He said the phone call never took place. Maybe it was a rare slip-up from one of the most calculating politicians on the Hill. It could also be a sign that that Mitch McConnell is sending signals to the president, look, you better clean this up better than you have so far. Or McConnell feels, if you look at somebody like Cory Gardner running for re-election as a Republican in Colorado, his numbers are very bad at the moment for re-election. McConnell would have to lose a lot of seats in this off-year election. But if the president goes down in flames, that's not going to be good for senators running and Mitch McConnell's majority ship of the Senate could be in peril. So that's a lot of extrapolation from one answer, but I think it's an interesting thing to watch. Uh, uh, but look, we haven't, and I'm, this is, I'm not getting indignant at you because you're, you're merely a, a tribune. You're merely carrying a message forward in the world. It is absolutely outrageous. This is a, a subornation of American foreign policy, something which Republicans and Democrats, a bipartisan bill to help the Ukrainians, military aid to to help the ukrainians in a, a war against russia and the president has has taken this and put it to his own completely nefarious political purposes it's you know revolting it is an undermining of congress it is an undermining of foreign policy where is the where's just the the kind of civic <laughs> outrage that should exist like- in our legislators it's shocking it's shocking that not even one of them, not even Mitt Romney, who I admire the heck out of, is is able to to speak up about this in well, a meaningful way. Romney's spoken up a little bit. He just He's, hasn't said, like, I'm ready to impeach. I mean, yeah. of the Republicans, no, Romney's Romney doing has the best spoken of, up the oh, most. By far, by far, by far. <laughs> but, but I'm saying he, even the person who has, you know, not much to lose is not really kind of standing up and saying firmly how – absolutely outrageous this is can i uh, uh, can i just throw some some kindling on your um on your roaring fire in fact what you have um is at least uh, you have a couple of instances of the exact opposite uh, happening so you have uh, steve scalise in the leadership the whip of the republicans in the house in this stunt that we mentioned at the top of the conversation saying that republicans are being shut out of this secret process 45 Republicans have access to the to the transcripts of the interviews in which Republicans are taking place. Um, and what that does, I think, is different than what, what happens when, when members of Congress are asked to stand up for something the president says and they, they shuffle away and say, I didn't hear what he said, or they mischaracterize what he said so as not to have to defend it or so forth and so on. Those are, you know, low-grade things. What uh, Congressman Scalise is doing, and others have done it as well, is basically taking – he knows what the rules of the of – the, um, of the House procedures are in, pa- in part because they were passed by a Republican majority. He knows how this works. He knows that Republicans are in the in the meetings that they stormed. Nevertheless, he's presenting it to the public as if um, as if Republicans were not allowed, as if the Democrats are doing something terribly wrong. This is to to basically distort reality by burning the institution that he is a part of and that he has some obligation of steward to, stewardship towards. And that is something that you can't go back against. That's something you can't, you know, say, well, it was Donald Trump and he has an interesting way of talking. This is using something that's happening in the moment. Um, and and it's also causing other kinds of weird backbends. Senator John Cornyn saying, you know, this impeachment is overturning an election. By definition, impeachments overturn elections. That's what they do. Well, so I, yeah. it's... And and there's only one, actually, I, there's only one person, president, who could have been impeached where it would not overturn an election. And who would that be? <clears throat> Gerald Ford. Ding, 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 ding. Very good, David. Oh Very my God. good. Very good. Well, I was, I went, like, I thought it included, happen? I include, I included Chester Arthur and John Tyler, but Martin um, Tumagian pointed out, no, actually, since they were vice presidents, they would have been yeah. elected as well. And so and Ford Lyndon would be Johnson, the actual, I guess. Yeah. right? No, LBJ. well, the, these, well, and Truman and so forth, but the, they were ultimately elected. Wait, so if you were okay. picking right. one president, it would be Ford. <laughs> so anyway, carry on, everyone. Uh, to add on to what John is saying around Scalise and 
and they're burning down their own institution. This is why I think there's so much outrage about the skiff takeover, not over the protest, which seems legit, but of the members of Congress bringing their cell phones into the secure facility, which is a totally trivial question in some ways, t- trivial matter. But it does show the way in which they are they are willing to uh, ignore rules, ignore principles, ignore things which they they have held to be important on other circumstances, just to completely grandstand a point and to that small act of destruction of destruction of the security of that facility is in some ways more significant than all the disruption that they're causing from their protest. Well, and Um, they did it to distract, right? I mean, they succeeded in changing the headlines for at least a day. So like, good on them for that as a political move. But I think the part of the reason maybe you're thinking about this, or at least I was last night, is all the things that were like down and up and up is down. So, you know, we used to basically as a country agree that like ISIS was bad, that preventing Russian aggression was a goal of the United States. And lately that protecting classified information, if it had anything to do with, you know, Hillary Clinton or her State Department was incredibly vital. And now all of those things are like up for grabs in um, – the Republican Party. And at another one of those is that the State Department, that American diplomats represent our interests. And then you have this complete gutting of the State Department, undermining of the idea of these diplomats working for the national interest. And it's now it's all deep state conspiracy. And instead, we have we have the cartoonishly sinister trio of Giuliani and his henchmen going over to, to run a shadow foreign policy, which is supposedly better than what all these diplomats are doing. Can I jump on that point very quickly, which is that um, Bill Taylor was appointed by um, Trump, George W. Bush, and originally um, put in the Foreign Service by Ronald Reagan. Um, But that actually, none of that should matter. A Secretary of State should stand up for those officials because it sends a signal to the rest of his – to the rest of his State Department. And that's one of the things that Taylor was getting at in his opening statement, which is that the norms and traditions and honor and character and duty that you feel to this shared set of beliefs – That is what propels people into 30-year careers in the Foreign Service. That is what propels people to join the CIA and do, you know, dangerous or uh, unsung work late at night. That is what, uh, as Secretary of Defense Mattis explained to me, that is what sends the young man or woman up the hill in Afghanistan. That these ideas and these this sense of duty and this um, uh, that that Taylor was writing about in his opening statement. That's what is at stake here. There was another aspect of that opening statement I've been thinking about, which is that Taylor describes his concern when Secretary of State Pompeo asked him to take over as the top diplomat in the Ukraine. And the reason Taylor was concerned is that he knew that Marie Yovanovitch had been pushed out in this unruly way by Giuliani and his henchmen. So he's saying to Pompeo, like, basically, I only want to do this job if it's clear that the United States support for Ukraine uh, and true anti-corruption efforts in Ukraine and strengthening Ukraine against Russia if all of those values are still our policy and what we hold dear. And Pompeo reassured him. And obviously, you know, Taylor feels completely sold out. But I also wonder if Pompeo is really regretting that he appointed someone to this job who was an actual upstanding public servant, right? There are like these key sort of mid-level positions um, in the impeachment story that if they were held by flunkies, this whole story would be different. Taylor's is one of them. Um, The inspector general for the intelligence community, whose name is Michael Atkinson, he's the one who made sure the whistle complaint, whistleblower complaint actually made it to Congress. I mean, it had its own route to Congress, but he went basically around the Justice Department, which was saying, oh, no, you don't have to turn this over. If these people were all like political toadies, we would not have the record that we have. We have our annual conundrum show coming up live at the Fox Theater in Oakland, California on December 18th. We have tickets still at slate.com slash live. We want you to come and we also want you to send us your conundrums. We have some good ones, but you should tweet to us with hashtag conundrum or go to our special form slate.com slash conundrum and fill it out with a conundrum there. We've gotten some great ones from you already. 
So, for example, this is a this is a real this is a philosophical question: Is hell the devil's heaven? I don't know. That's deep. Oh, that's a good one. That's a question that's for the good place. Deep. Got to watch a lot of that show to be able to answer. For the rest of your life, you either have to speak and rhyme or sing everything that you say. Which you choose? <laughs> choose. Oh man, hmm. man! There's so many more other good ones. Please come to our show in Oakland on December 18th. Slate.com slash live for tickets. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. Emily Bazelon. What is going on at Facebook and with Facebook's relationship with politics and with Congress and with conservatives and with politicians? There seems to be a bunch of different streams all merging. And it all, again, as usual, makes Facebook seem deeply unappealing. (laughs) Yeah. So Facebook and its CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, are emerging as a kind of villain and punching bag for both the right and the left. And they're in a difficult position. But of course, whose fault is that? So what we've seen in the last week is the a real... uh, debate, to use a polite word, over Facebook's current policies involving ads, political ads for the upcoming elections, and also just like speech in general. And so Zuckerberg tried to address this head on with the big speech at Georgetown University in which he comes out strongly for the values of free speech. And he says, look, people don't want their ability to see different points of view mediated by any kind of company. And so we're putting all these political ads out there for you to judge for themselves. And if politicians are lying, well, you can hold them accountable. This is, of course, not a new position. This is the idea that Facebook is a platform, not a publisher, and is thus not responsible for a lot of the content that it puts out there in the world. The problem with this, of course, is that on a number of fronts, Facebook is very much policing content, and it is actually deviating from its current fact-checking policies for political ads, treating them differently than it treats other um, content. And I think um, Congresswoman um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did like an amazing job (laughs) of kind of showing Zuckerberg at his most evasive and, and just sort of unsatisfying in terms of the policies he has about political ads. On the right, you also have Facebook very aware that senators like uh, Josh Hawley off Missouri are making their bones by accusing Facebook of being biased against conservatives. And I also think that Facebook is kind of stuck with Zuckerberg's own libertarian ideology. He really does want to believe that his company is making the world better and that its policies toward campaign speech in general and ads in particular is going to work. I I think it's not going to work. I think that Facebook is going to be a force for ill, not good in the upcoming elections. But Zuckerberg just doesn't want to see that. And there is a 
pretty easy fix here, which is that Facebook could just say, you know what, we're not going to run any political ads. If they don't want to do that writ large, they could say that about national elections. You know, for local candidates or smaller races, you can see the value in people being able to promote their views on social media, and maybe they'll more likely to be held accountable for lying, which used to be something people didn't do in ads because it was shaming. But for national elections, in particular the presidential election, it's really hard to see how Facebook running ads is a good thing. But here's the question that if people have stopped penalizing candidates for lying— haven't we gotten to a place where Facebook and no, no, neither Facebook nor anyone else can uh, solve that problem? Facebook can't um, plug every hole in the in the the dam, which again isn't an argument for not trying to do anything. But then the question is: Are the real serious problems of our um, of our information sharing much deeper and and um, more problematic than anything that he can fix? I, so. What I think is being overlooked in this, I actually think the political ad issue is pretty minor. Um, it's not nothing, and and there's a Decepticon quality, a huge amount of the political advertising on Facebook, and you also can't track it the way you could track TV ads, and so that's a Well, that also people's responses to political ads then change their but algorithms in I, terms of other things that are presented. I don't think it's a – I just don't think it's a huge issue. What I think is being overlooked here is the way – or underplayed – there are all these attacks on Facebook from the right, uh, this notion that Facebook is somehow uh, biased against conservative, when actually the exact opposite is what's happened, is that Facebook has now become – and Facebook and the Facebook ecosystem uh, have become so effective for organizing on the right and for passing on false, mostly false, largely false information. If you look at – the most shared articles on Facebook on any given day, nine of 10 of them are conservative, semi-truth at best kinds of articles. Things from Ben Shapiro is always showing up in the top of the, those lists. And that the that actually the, the, this idea that that Facebook is is somehow suppressing the speech on the right is just nonsense. What's happening is that is because there's a, a kind of I don't know if it's a gullibility, if there's a willingness to believe, if, that, if Facebook is just a more effective ecosystem for, for people on the right. But it is where the ideas of the right and the more dangerous ideas of the right find purchase, find, you know, root in and get shared. And, and I think what Mark Zuckerberg doesn't really want to acknowledge, Mark Zuckerberg, who I think probably thinks of himself as a libertarian with a liberal bent, is that he has created a, an environment which is very, very useful for the right and for people that he actually finds loathsome and he will gradually he because he's been doing these dinners with conservative pundits you know he'll have tucker carlson and and other folks of that vein over for dinner and have these discussions with them um he's going to end up in that world he's going to you you i guarantee you within three years you will see him at dinner with jared kushner and ivanka trump and they'll be hanging out together is that he's that the, the company is is fundamentally an ecosystem for the right now not for the left and that's a, that right, and be then, a big problem. And then add to that that he uh, gave a speech to his employees that leaked in which he talked about the idea of an antitrust action against Facebook in a potential Elizabeth Warren administration as an existential threat to the company. Now, right. that's like a natural stance for him to take. Like, yes, if the government brought an antitrust enforcement action against Facebook, that would be a problem. So you can see why he doesn't want that to happen. But – I think, again, the politics are pushing him in a particular direction. David's essentially saying a version of what I was saying, because I think that if you look at the top 10 things, uh, and by the way, if you're not David, you can tell me, but if you look at those top 10 stories, those would seem to me to be beyond Facebook's reach. Those stories that are being sent around um, are not really... a lot of them are not fact-checkable. I mean, they are characterizations and framings and um, elevations of certain issues that distort political reality, perhaps, but that don't have a specific fact that can be um, uh, that can be pinpointed and therefore um, to remove them. What what strikes me about Facebook and I mean, they did they did remove a recent network of Russian-backed accounts. Um, that are another one of the challenges out there because the Russian-backed accounts are not just fake. They're they're actually using 
uh, things that would be considered not fact-checkable to create division and dissent and discord. And so that's a problem which they are, another problem they have to solve, which they've done some things to try to get at. But what, what strikes me is that lack of creativity towards improving these more basic ideas about critical thinking and, and that if you were it's any of these companies, Facebook or, or Twitter or any of the others, that you're, there is an opportunity to use and come up with new ways that would actually promote or at least try. Uh, you may not solve it, but at least try to break people out of these patterns um, that are causing these tribal reactions to information. You know, one of the things that Facebook is just refusing to really face up to, or at least I haven't seen it publicly do that, is the way in which its algorithms promote insightful content, even if it's not completely mm. false, like you're saying. Uh, social media. I mean, insightful we certainly with a C. Sees. Insightful, you mean inciting? Yes, yes, not not they not. Do. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I just want to clarify. Yes. <laughs> yes, content that has the effect of inciting people and provoking strong emotions, in particular anger. I mean, we've seen this on YouTube, and we see it on Facebook and Instagram and the other social media platforms it controls, and so. That's another way in which there is a bigger responsibility here. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you can also think about this in terms of the way in which the government is abdicating its role. So our government does not want to tell people what they can or can't see on social media. But our government does regulate the airwaves and television. And so in a way, I think the most to me, persuasive or at least like poignant thing that Zuckerberg can say is like, look, the government has put us in this awkward position of having to figure out how much to police speech. And we don't want to be in that position. You can argue that what should be happening here is the FCC should be helping Facebook or taking over from Facebook in making some of these decisions. Yeah, that's, I think that's, that's just um, not going to happen. <laughs> not this FCC. <laughs> Not this yeah, but it's something another administration yeah. could really take on. I mean that – right? Like we have to get away from the notion that the government can't do anything about this because then you have the social media companies in that role. And that is not like the really great place to locate this discussion. Their incentives are not public service. Yeah. The the admitting that basically that their model benefits from bilge um, – would be a good first step. Um, yes. that, and it's the same, it's the same natural reaction that, um, and, and, you know, the hunt for attention has been what all these, uh, social media platforms have been after since their inception and politicians are looking for the same attention and they know how to keep it and maintain it, which is by riling you up and fundraisers who send you solicitations telling you the wolf is at the door, do the same thing. This house and Senate, which flips all the time between parties, there's, the structure of the thing creates no incentive for working together. The incentives are for demonizing the uh, opponent so that you can gain control of the institution again. So they are flowing with and profiting from um, the attention shattering that's been a part of all of these other parts. They should, the way they advocated for, say, uh, more uh, inclusive immigration policy, they should turn loose their energies and passions and powers um, towards creating this new fantastic solution to row in the other direction. Slate plus members, you get bonus segments on this podcast and on other Slate podcasts today in tribute to John's wonderful interview, his first 60 Minutes interview, where he got uh, Christine Lagarde to show how she pretends to drink wine. We will talk about other ways to pretend to do things. And you can see that if you go to slate.com slash GapFest Plus. You can't see it, actually, because we're a podcast. But you can hear us talking yes. about it if you go to slate.com slash GapFest Plus and become a member today. But you could see John's interview with Christine Lagarde on 60 Minutes. All of a sudden this week, there was a spate of pundits making the same argument. I think it began with Matt Iglesias and Vox, then uh, infected David Leonhardt and Michelle Coddle at the New York Times, all arguing, making the same point that perhaps the key way to accelerate the removal of President Trump or to accelerate his unpopularity is mass protests. And yet there are not mass protests. So, John, why are there not mass protests right now? We began the Trump presidency with 
probably the largest protests in American history. Right. Uh, there was also after the Stoneman Douglas shooting, there was this marvelous set of of protests around gun safety. Uh, but at the moment, impeachment has not caused a upswelling of people in the streets in the way we see in Hong Kong, in Chile, and in other countries, there have been mass street protests that seem to be ha- having causing real change or at least causing real uproar. Uh, well, I think the, I, I mean, um, one, there is probably a certain sense of fatigue. And proof of this is that some of the news organizations that used to catalog and um, every one of Donald Trump's lies have stopped doing it. There have just been too many of them. And it's also quite taxing because if you um, care about the opinion of other people, you actually need to evaluate whether the, what's being said is a lie or merely being spun. But the point is that even people who are in the business of uh, – paying close attention um, and uh, despite fatigue um, are getting fatigued by the kind of constant pace of things in the in the modern world. I think secondly, in, in, impeachment is probably more abstract than if it's a specific right of yours that uh, whether it's um, the right to vote or or that even the, the migrants being separated uh, at the border from their children um, or with women and, and, uh, and abortion rights, there's a direct personal relationship with either the specific issue or somebody you know who cares a great deal about the specific issue. Um, but I don't I, – so I think that explains perhaps some of the middling turnout, but um, – but I think as a um, as an organizational tool um, for people who are opposed to the current administration to use public demonstration, not necessarily to improve the conditions of the impeachment inquiry, but merely as a way to capture voters, register voters, and otherwise participate in the electoral process the way the, say, Tea Party did, seems to me to be, um, you know, a, a, probably a smart way to go from a political perspective if you're not a fan of the president's. Yeah, I mean, I thought Matt Iglesias' initial article was pretty persuasive. Um, one of the things that is at stake here is just like getting media attention, some sense of urgency that this is something that people are really galvanized by and horrified by. And it seems like impeachment right now could take on that character in a way that it didn't have the same kind of momentum behind it last summer when organizers kind of tried to do some impeachment rallies. So it does seem like that kind of pressure point could be really meaningful right now and give people an outlet for their energy. Emily, do you think the purpose of that is to actually build support for impeachment and removal from office? Or is the purpose more of a bank shot or more of a an electoral play, which is this may not cause the removal of President Trump from office and impeachment conviction, but it will definitely galvanize uh, these protests will serve this electoral organizing function the way that the Women's March in 2017 hugely did, which is that the Women's March was itself sort of a one day event, but it ended up having this tremendous knock on effect because it it inspired a whole bunch of people who would then become candidates and inspired groups that then helped organize for the 2018 election. So do you think that the these protests are removal protests or they are fundamentally for electoral purposes for 2020? I mean, I think it's both. The argument Matt was making is that Watergate was all about moving the kind of technical insider D.C. political mechanisms toward impeachment. And what Matt pointed out was at the time, the parties were much less polarized. The judiciary wasn't split between conservatives and liberals in the same way. There was no Federalist Society. And you also had three nightly news networks delivering essentially the same set of facts into American households every night. So an agreed upon set of facts for the public. None of these conditions apply now. And that makes mass protests a more important Signal. And so, yes, it's possible that that would change the way some Republican senators in swing states in particular are thinking about impeachment if they felt real concentrated public pressure. And then it has this knock on effect, as you're saying, about galvanizing people for the election. I think that what we're going to see probably. among Republicans, a kind of switch to a process defense for Trump, right? As the case for impeachment 
gets stronger based on testimony like Bill Taylor's and if this case for a real quid pro quo of withholding military aid becomes completely buttoned down. Then you're going to start to see Republicans say, well, you know, the election, it's only a year and change away. We should just wait for that. And so then the rallies, if they happen, would become an important touchstone for that circumstance as well as for impeachment. One of the the things that I always come back to when presidential elections pop up, or even when when any national election comes up, Plots is law. I'm going to give you guys Plots is law. I'm going to let you in on this. <laughs> I'm ready. Plots is law is whichever side is having more fun in an election wins. Oh. So if you look and at rallies are a sign of people having fun as people, well as people having test. fun. If you if you look at 2016, there there was so much delight in the trolling of Hillary Clinton. There was so much – I mean, there was a nastiness to what Trump was doing, but there was also a kind of exuberance to Trump and his supporters, and they had so much fun making fun of Hillary. 2010, same, same with the Tea Party. There was this, we're part of the Tea Party movement. We have a Tea Party. It's a Tea Party movement. And 20, 2008 with Obama and the rallies around Obama, similarly, uh, 92 with Clinton, there was a, this – Again, this joyfulness in what Clinton was doing that got people excited. 1980 with Reagan. Whenever I look at where the the kind of glee is, and to, 2018, uh, Democrats had again there was so much. It's not just enthusiasm. It's a it's glee, and glee can have malice in it also. So so there's plenty there's plenty of in 20, 2018 and 2010 there was tons of malice, but it is where is the where is the the kind of joy and that's I and whenever I see that I'm like oh those guys are going to win and and so to me the point of the impeachment rallies is may it might actually change voting on impeachment it change, may change the dynamics in that but mostly it's going to get people fired up and 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 loose and they're going to have funny signs and great you know, memes that are going to spill over into the 2020 election and that will help Democrats a lot that's Plotz's law but the problem is that the people who are ironic and stuff like that are, plus is law are, tm are, are people like who are sorry, ironic. you were saying sorry john <laughs> you were talking are... yes you were talking right. about plus is law <laughs> what david is very pleased with himself right now he is he's having fun um, i'm having having glee i'm having glee it's winning, whoever has the most fun john i win the Dickerson. podcast <laughs> that's right he's having he's having glee meanwhile somebody listening to the podcast has thrown their headset across the room um and not for the first time this is um two reactions to that one people who are ironic and um and si- sort of look at things with a sideways uh glint of the kind that it seems to me is a precondition for the joy that you're describing tend to maybe not be get out there in March types um, and that there's probably a Twitter sa- there's a there's a kind of social media sapping that takes place where people feel like they can kind of say their witty thing on Twitter and move on can, second thing can I, I interrupt you sub- can I stop you there yeah, and sure, talk, can we sure. talk about that for one second which is a strong disagree based on the experience of both the gun rallies and the women's march yeah but dude they're not having joy at gun rallies Oh my God! You were absolutely wrong. If you if those were joyful occasions, there, it's not that they're it's not that there isn't somber, but the the collective fervor, oh, the well, pleasure of company, joy. the pleasure of company, and the and if you looked at what the signs were and the wit and the the kind of the the way in which people interact and the way that people dressed, it, it was filled with. I mean, same thing with the Tea Party. The Tea Party was a was at heart was a very dark movement in a lot of ways. There there can be darkness in in this. There's a it's the the kind of sense of collective fervor and enthusiasm and and connectivity that people feel is what I'm talking about. Well, then if that's your uh, that's a different definition of joy than I thought you were do- using. So under that definition, sure. The corollary to the Plotz law is Nixon's law, which is whenever there's an organization aligned against X, bet on X. Whenever. But there's so many organizations aligned against everything. I'm like, is well, that I don't know. This was a previous era. <laughs> okay. Emily, just wrapping this up, there, there were these efforts at impeachment rallies earlier. They did not really work. H- how is it you think if there are going to be impeachment rallies today, that there will be an organizing principle for them. What is it that actually will get people to show up in the streets around this, as opposed to just being indignant about it, which they clearly are? 
So I feel like until the Ukraine scandal, impeachment was divisive, unpopular, and not clear. Like there just wasn't a clear case for it. And none of those things are true anymore. When you look at the polls, when you look at the facts, it's just all much more galvanizing. So to me, the everything that happened regarding impeachment discussions before like the end of September, I think, is just in a different box than what's happening since then. This is about corruption. It's like pretty simple. And lots of people don't like corruption, or at least like that's been the American way in the past. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are gleefully, maliciously planning your street protest in your local tavern, what will you be chattering to your friends about John Dickerson? Two things. One is um, a New York Times piece called Centrism is Cancelled, High Schoolers Debate, the Impeachment Inquiry. Um, and it's about a, uh, it's a Times piece about a um, uh, Chalamet High School and the debate they had about impeachment in history class um, in which they had to actually behave not like dogs and not like people, uh, you know, not the poo flinging engaged on in Twitter. And it's an interesting piece that, in, that contains this fact. Well, I guess I will put this to the crowd. What do you all think is the percentage of adults who can name all three branches of government? Oh, God. Mm. It's going to be really low. 40%. I want it to be like 80, 80 percent. 40. 39. Sigh. So, David. Um, I just dropped the mic over here. <laughs> and that would be very interesting to see um, what people so they can like but do they know what they do and so forth so in all what, fairness anyway. that's a kind of technical question like i mean i have to i marinate in this all the time but i i mean mm-hmm. and i i know the answer <laughs> just to reassure everyone but i feel like sometimes <laughs> these are kinds of gotcha questions like you could understand that we have a judiciary a congress and a president and not know that we call those things the sure. three branches of government right yep it all depends on how the question is framed. That's a, a, quite a fair point. What do you think the wrong answers that people give are? Because I bet people will say the military is a branch of government. Yeah, I bet that's yeah. the – if you're asked, they might say that. It was done by Annenberg. It's the Annenberg Civics Knowledge Survey. We've talked about this before and whether – and also then – and we should come back to it again probably at some point. But is – you know, so what's the point? Like is this just – who cares as Emily I think is implicit in what you're saying, which is, okay, maybe you can't name them in the way either the pollster asks or maybe even in the way a perfectly divine design poll would ask. But what if you understood the content – is it more important to know there are three branches or understand that the government was formed with a, with a system of shared powers and that it was meant to be – slow and inefficient so that um, uh, there would be minority rights and the majority wouldn't uh, wouldn't run roughshod and also that a min- minority wouldn't be in control and then whether that's under assault right now and so forth and so on. So, um, anyway, You know what I that- would like? I would like people to understand what they have the power to change through their vote, like mm-hmm. how our interlocking mechanism of separation of powers works. I don't have to know what it's called. I don't care about that. Just like some sense of like the president picks judges, the Senate confirms them. Like that's how the third branch gets constructed, right? Just like some idea of what leads to what in the system. The, the more fun part of my chatter is um, a Twitter uh, handle that I follow called History Lovers Club, and Lovers is L V R S. No vowels. I think the no vowels. This club. is this uh, uh, posts great pictures and just little bits of joy in the middle of the day. One that was posted this week was reasons for admission, and these are the list of reasons for admission to a lunatic asylum in the eighteen hundreds. And the tweet says it reads like a list of potential metal band names. And it includes things like immoral life, ill treatment by husband, egotism, uh, excessive sexual uh, behavior, the war, time of life, um, kicked in the head by a horse, overtaxing mental powers, political excitement. I want to know the cases of the people who were admitted for these reasons. Anyway, but I the the bigger point is to um, it's a very enjoyable um, uh, Twitter account to follow, and um, so I encourage everyone to do so. Labaz, what's your chatter? I have a kind of um, trolling David Plotz chatter today, <laughs> which is my outrage of the week is about a bill that the Trump Golf Links and Hotel in. 
Ireland sent to the Irish police oh who had to go God. cover I'm I'm going to keep going. They had to cover this like yeah. side trip that President Trump made to Ireland. And this bill which comes to over $100,000 is to the Irish police from Trump's golf resort. And it has things on it like 875, I don't know if these are pounds or dollars for additional tea and coffee due to inclement weather. I am so apoplectic about things like this. It drives me crazy. I mean, maybe as an American taxpayer, I should be glad to know that it is Irish taxpayers who are getting screwed this time. But the notion that, you know, we are having foreign governments pay into President Trump's private properties for services that he demands, I just it it just makes me furious. Yeah. I can't I I I share Even you share don't your think rage. this was oh, okay. It was, it was shocking. Thank you. How can they do that? Also, I take if back read, controlling of you. What's what's uh, if you've read any Tana French? You know that the Irish cops they they've got so many important murders to solve. They can't be exactly, and they can handle inclement weather. They don't need additional tea. tea. <laughs> yeah. It's outrageous. They're, they're, they, the Dublin Murder Squad has work to do. Uh, my chatter is. I thought Emily was surely going to chatter it, but I'll just do it because she didn't. The amazing arguments that were made by President Trump's personal lawyers this week in front of a judge. <laughs> oh my God! Have we? I was thinking about, that. about this. Yeah. So the so it's a case involving President Trump's uh, tax returns, and he's fighting a subpoena around this on grounds that he, as president, has absolute immunity from criminal indictment or investigation over his taxes. And his attorney then said. In response to a question from the judge, the judge asked, well, if President Trump stood in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shot somebody, could local authorities investigate? Could they do anything about it? And Trump's lawyer said, no, that if the president murdered someone on Fifth Avenue with a gun, no one could investigate that now. No one could pursue it. This isn't about whether you could convict the president at trial during his tenure or even whether you can indict. You may not even investigate. That's the position they're yes. taking. The position is nothing can be done. And his lawyer, William Consovoy, said that is correct. Nothing can be done. It is shocking. Do you think the Supreme Court's going to uphold that? No, when they get I it? do not think that is a tenable legal position. I really hope not, so it, I'm saying no. Emily, is is there a way in which that could be an own goal, which is to say you make a series of, of stable and reasonable claims in the first three things you say. The fourth thing you say is so bonkers and at odds with the original conception of the job that it completely eviscerates the previous three things you said or can they just be eh, that was stupid and you went too far but you know the underlying uh, your underlying claim is, or your underlying defense is a is a reasonable one you can say oh that's stupid and you went too far your first three points are valid the problem is they went to this point that because in this case it's only about investigating the president right we're talking about whether yeah. the manhattan district attorney can subpoena the tax returns of trump for the purposes of an investigation so they had to go there that's the problem mm -hmm. listeners you have also been sending us wonderful chatters at at slate gabfest you've been sending us stories that have fascinated you. Uh, they're tremendous. Again, I say this every week, just such a great set of things this week. I want to call out uh, a tweet from at Joe Pye, pale Pye. Joe, I'm sorry to mispronounce you if I have, um, but it points to a piece in ESPN.com about the fitness routines of chess grandmasters. So it's about how uh, people who play chess have to stay in fighting shape, even though all they do is sit in front of a board and think, and they basically don't move for hours and hours and hours. The piece is moderately interesting on the question of their fitness routine and how, you know, they eat protein and don't take as much sugar. And now they drink chocolate milk because that's got a good mix of sugar and proteins in it, blah, blah, blah. What was fascinating in it was the data on what happens to a grandmaster's weight during a tournament. And during these world championship matches, which take place over 10 days, these guys will lose 20 pounds, even though wow. they're not doing anything. They're just sitting. And the reason they're losing 20 pounds is that the kind of, even you think of, oh, the way you lose weight or the way that you drop calories is by 
intense physical activity, actually intense mental activity and intense stress, your body is working really, really hard. You're metabolizing a ton and you, you just don't want to eat. You also have a hard time taking in calories. And so they, they, they were talking about the, the number two player in the world who's not – he only weighs like a buck sixty to begin with – will drop down 20 pounds, drop a seventh, an eighth of his body weight during a tournament. Clearly, I'm just not thinking hard enough. I know. Had that same thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely felt the same way as I read that. That is our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Franck. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Melissa Kaplan helped in D.C. today. Ryan helped in New Haven. Yes, Emily. Is Ryan McAvoy Indeed. there? Indeed. Yes, he And is. Alan Peng is in CBS with John. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is managing producer. Please follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGabFest. Tweet chatter to us there. Also tweet conundrums to us with a hashtag conundrum. And if you can be in Oakland on December 18th, please join us at the Fox Theater for our annual conundrum show. Slate.com slash live for tickets to that. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week on Halloween. Ooh. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? So, uh, Slate Plus inspired today by John's John's uh, inaugural effort at 60 Minutes, which is a profile of Christine Lagarde, the uh, head of the IMF, who is now going to run the European Central Bank. And my favorite moment in John's story, which I commend to you for all reasons, but I particularly commend it the last bit, John notes something about Lagarde, which is that she apparently has this reputation for being able to fake drink wine that she doesn't drink. Um, or I don't know if she drinks, but she pretends to drink a lot more than she actually drinks. And so John, while sitting and having a having a drink with her, has her show how she pretends to drink. And it's fantastic how she like she you see her swirl the wine around, sniff it, you know, to, you know, sort of make, you know, gesturally be interested in it, pour, put it up to her lips fake a swallow, and then put the glass back down, not having drunk anything. It's just, it's acting. It is acting at the highest level. Um, so I wanted John to tell us how that came about. And then we're going to talk about other ways to fake things. This will be a rated G version. It's not going to be like, we're not going to get <laughs> extremely graphic here. So your children are safe. Um, I hadn't even considered huh. that. And now uh, here we are. Um so, yeah, well, I, I um, had read in a bunch of the profiles that she doesn't drink when she's on the job, and she's French, first of all, and has a house in um, uh, Normandy and um, is just more – is just incredibly French. And I thought, what a what a uh, surprise that somebody who comes from a wine-growing culture um, and, and is so French wouldn't drink wine. And then I thought, well – how does that how do you do that in a job where there is so much schmoozing and so much toast giving and all of that and so um there were a bunch of times in the interview this is the only one that made it um to uh that made it into the into the piece where i asked her to teach me something i asked, i also asked her to teach me part of what the profile was about and what she's devoted her career to doing is lifting up women basically hiring them or insisting that she won't go to meetings in which there are only men um she did that both in, in the private sector as a lawyer and at the IMF and 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 plans to do it at the European Central Bank. And so I said, she talks about mentoring women and in these rooms full of men. So I said, okay, I'm a woman. I'm going into a room full of men. What are you What are you teaching me? Like, give me the give me your briefing before I go in. So that was um, also part of it. Anyway, so she um, showed us how to do that. And um, I she does in fact drink wine, but just not on the job because she um, you know wants to keep her wits about her. What do you guys do about food you don't want to eat? When you're at a dinner and you feel like people are sort of watching or you're supposed to be politely eating food or you take a bite of something and it's gross, what do you guys do? <laughs> is this yeah, a public okay. – is it – yeah, is it is it like a, a, a at a friend's house or are you at, at you know, a dinner for the uh, uh, king of Sweden? Huh. Is the di answer different in those two different settings? Oh, yeah, I guess definitely. it is. Well, let's let's take either of them. I'll take them both. I'm interested in both answers. I, 
I don't think it's that. I don't find that that hard. I mean, I think once you've taken a bite of something, it's very hard to untake the bite. So you, well, obviously, I have found no, have yeah, found no way to, out. to 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 get away from that part of it. But the not eating something that is on your plate is pretty easy because there's all generally there's in most situations like that there's more than one thing on your plate. And so you eat the things that you like, and you kind of cut up the thing that you don't like and sort of push it around. You deconstruct it slightly so it's not in this its whole position. It's it's broken up. The the chicken, you've cut the chicken off the bone. You haven't actually eaten the chicken, it's just pushed around elsewhere on your plate, and it just looks kind of like a garbage fire has happened there. But not that you haven't <laughs> eaten it. It's just that you've oh, you've you know, you've just been a little bit messy. And that's that would that's my strategy. For things which are truly revolting, John. If it's not at somebody's private house, it, it, uh, it is acceptable to if you if you take a bite of something and it is just so awful that you think you might do injury to yourself uh, uh, in one form or another. It is fine to uh, discard it into your napkin um, discreetly. Discreetly, yes, of course. No, you don't hawk it across the table. Um, Maybe that's uh, what big napkins are actually for. You can yeah, like fold no. up a corner of them and still have the rest of it. One summer I made money. Um, I don't even know if I made money actually, but I worked in a restaurant folding napkins and running them through this um, very hot uh, roller uh, that, that uh, flattened them out and ironed them out. And you would take the napkins out of the bin in which they'd been thrown to first wash them. And man, when you opened up some of those napkins, uh, the surprises you would find. It was like Cracker Jacks, but in reverse. Anyway, um, the um, uh, but I don't know what you do. GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply